Good morning. Let me add my welcome to that one that Philip has already made. Folks, could I encourage you to have that Bible passage open before you? These Genesis passages are relatively straightforward in terms of we read them and then we try to uh, contemplate them and consider what God might be saying to us through them. As Philip was rereading it there, I was uh, quite struck by Jacob's comments when he's uh, awoken from the sleep. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I wasn't aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, even when we come to a place like this, uh, which is all about your people gathering to worship you and to hear your word, it's maybe rarely that we actually expect a living encounter with you. That we go home in awe because we've known your presence. Lord, we pray that you would come and speak to us in your word today. Amen. So it's a couple of weeks ago that we started this series of studies in the life of Jacob, and we've called it A Life Less Ordinary. And I hope that we're going to see in this series the significance of our ordinary everyday lives, because I think we're prone, at least many of us are, to imagine that our ordinary lives aren't that important the Monday to Saturday stuff that happens in our homes and in our workplaces, wherever else we are. Well, I hope that in this series we're going to be uh, encouraged to see it all a little bit differently, to see how God meets ordinary people in ordinary places, but he does extraordinary things in them and through them. That's what we're hoping uh, will happen in this series together. Since we started our series a couple of weeks ago, we've got to know Uh, Jacob and his family, and we've realized very quickly, probably in both of those weeks, that that all's not well in Jacob's family. After years of waiting, God had given his parents, um, Isaac and Rebekah, two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And the older son Esau, if you remember, is a, a sensual sort of a guy. He's driven by his appetites. He would rather have the bowl of stew now than wait for the promises of God. Jacob is different. He seems to have a good appetite for for what God might do in him and through him, but he's willing to manipulate and cheat to get God's blessing. So you have these two sons, neither of which are particularly attractive, and you have your parents. Each has a favorite son, And last week we saw the two halves of the family are basically at war against each other. Rebecca works with her favorite Jacob to defraud Esau of the blessing that Isaac would have given him. So this family is in relational meltdown. And that's the backdrop to everything that we've read here today. So when the passage begins there, you can see that the the, the deception has led to deep grievances. Esau says he's going to kill his brother. I don't think it gets much worse than that in a family, by the way. Uh, we might feel we have some family strife. But until a sibling says, 
I want to kill you. Sorry, we've said that all, I, I think. But th- this feels like there's some substance to it. Oh, so, oh sorry, some of you haven't. Um, I did with my siblings all the time. Um, I want to kill you. But Esau wants to kill Jacob. And Rebecca knows that this is for real and she needs to act quickly to get her favorite son offside. So she tells Jacob that he has to leave. He has to go to her family far away in Haran and she'll call him back once Esau's anger has cooled. In verse 45, we'll deal quite quickly with the early verses. We find Rebecca doing what she does best and that is manipulating the situation. She seems to be a, a bit of a genius at that. To be fair to her, at least this time she's talking with her husband. Do you remember in the last material that Sam dealt with last week, the two halves of the family never spoke? At least this time she's speaking to Isaac. And we didn't give Isaac a whole lot of credit last week, but let's notice that he's doing some things a little bit better this week. In the opening verses of chapter 28, he calls Jacob to him. Remember, Jacob's deceived him. Jacob's pulled the wool over his eyes, but he doesn't make much of that. He gives this son the, the he gives leadership to his son. He, he, first of all, he tells him, listen, son, marry well, will you? That's important. Don't marry one of these local Canaanite women. Go and make the same journey that Abraham sent a servant on 60 or so years ago to find you a, a, a wife, Isaac says. And now Isaac is following, I think, at this moment in Abraham's footsteps. He is walking as a man of faith. He gets it right about about whom Isaac should marry. He also gets it right about the blessing. He goes ahead and confirms now in full knowledge what what he only did in the last chapter through deceit. He gives his blessing finally and with full knowledge to Jacob. So by this stage... God's blessing has fallen on Jacob and it's confirmed by his father Isaac and he sends him on his way. I think there's a really big moment in the story of Jacob and and you'll notice that things are a little bit different from here on in. It's a new chapter in his life. It seems to me a bit like that moment when uh, in our culture when a, a kid leaves home. When they go to university or when they move from the family home to take up a job somewhere. This is where the real and the deep transformation begins. As is quite often the case, transformation happens in difficult circumstances. I don't know about you, but I find I don't change very well when things are nice. Just happy to trundle on. Often it's difficult circumstances that open us up to God reaching us and and transforming us. And I think Jacob's circumstances here are extremely difficult. He's journeying here between two worlds, one where he's no longer welcome, where he's in grave danger, and one that he knows nothing about, to a family that he doesn't know, to a place that he doesn't know. He's in between two worlds. These Bible stories, it's always important to know whenever somebody goes on a journey what kind of a journey it is. 500 miles from Beersheba up north to Haran, somewhere on the border of Syria and modern-day Turkey. That would be an exhausting and demanding journey nowadays, but on foot, 
under the Middle Eastern sun. I think this is a real, a really big demanding moment in Jacob's life. With every step he takes, he put more distance between him and what he does know and love. And he's getting closer and closer to this unknown that he doesn't know. And in verse 11 of chapter 28, we read of of a moment. It's the only moment in the journey that we really read about. It's when he stops one night, because he can't travel at night in the desert. And he's exhausted, I'm going to guess. And he tethers his camel to a rock, and he lays his head on a stone, and he falls asleep, and he dreams. Dreams of a long flight of stairs coming down from heaven, down, 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 right, right beside where he's lying. And in his mind's eye, as he becomes accustomed to the, the bright, bright light, he sees angels ascending and descending. But he sees more than that. We're told that he sees God. When he reflects on what he says, he says, sees, he says in verse 16, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Friends, this, this is, we're going to stop here for a moment and think about this. This is a beautiful, beautiful moment. We're going to think just for a moment about um, the insights into the life of faith that we can take from this short part of Scripture. Let me point out a few things about this dream. First of all, Jacob isn't looking for God. Not that we're aware of. It's not not made explicit in the story. He's a fugitive on the run. He's not a pilgrimage going to some holy site. He's a fugitive on the run. He's not looking for God, but secondly, notice that God finds him. I think we, we talk often about the efforts that we're making to try and find God or to be with him or to meet with him. And there's undoubtedly a place for that. I think there are times in Scripture where we're encouraged to, to hunger after God and to, to look for him and to seek him. But that's not the full story. Because at this moment in time, Jacob doesn't seem to be looking for God, and yet God finds him. So we can only say that it's sheer grace. God intervenes. God steps in. He comes to Jacob and he says, I am with you. Third, notice where this takes place. He's not in a temple or in a church. He's not at a worship service or a conference. He's This is an ordinary place. It's a campsite. Now, if you know me, you'll know I'm not surprised that God would meet people in a campsite. But this is is as ordinary as, as things could possibly be. This campsite becomes the house of God. This life less ordinary that we're talking about. Ordinary places become awesome places. Our home, the office the kitchen sink, the classroom, the youth club, the school gate, the stand at Ravenhill. These are all potentially the awesome places, the places where we meet God. 
the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. A fourth thing, because of his growing awareness of God's presence in his life, Jacob begins to see his whole life differently. And we get an insight into that from the end of his life. In Genesis 47, verse 9, we read of a moment when an old Jacob is introduced to Pharaoh, the great king of Egypt. And Pharaoh asks him how old he is, and he says this, the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Jacob's life is now a pilgrimage. That's how he understands it. This is Jacob. Remember what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. This is Jacob who lived in that broken, dysfunctional home. All that Isaac and Rebekah and Esau stuff. That's what he's talking about. Those are the years of his pilgrimage. We're going to read over the next few weeks about times when he has trouble with his relationships, in his workplace, with his own family. These are the years of his pilgrimage. For old Jacob, as he looks back on this very everyday, ordinary life, he sees that it's a pilgrimage, a a journey with God. The ordinary, extraordinary, because God's been with him. It's beautiful, isn't it? This passage about Jacob's dream is, is just beautiful. I have to tell you, though, the way I've come to understand this passage has changed for me recently. I used to think that this was a very dramatic divine intervention where because of the circumstances in his life, this unique time, God was choosing to, to show Jacob something totally out of the ordinary. This stairway to heaven, these angels ascending and descending, God saying that he's with him. I thought that that was totally unusual. But that's not how I see it anymore. I see this now as Jacob's dream as an apocalypse. That's the the old Greek word for a, a revelation or an unveiling. Whenever something that's always been there is revealed and shown, the latter is always there. The angels descending and ascending always. God's presence, I am with you, always there, but not always evident to us. Earth is a place of endless possibility because it's not cut off from the presence and grace of God. God's grace is closer than we think. It's not really how we see it in the modern world, is it? In one of his last poems before his death in 1939, the Irish poet W.B. Yeats looks back over his life and he concludes wistfully, Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Now that my ladder's gone. For Yeats and for many other 20th century and 21st century people, 
their ladder is gone. They know only the impoverished existence of secular unbelief. Their lives are turned in finally only on themselves. Paul describes this state in the letter to the Ephesians. He talks about being without hope and without God in the world. We've seen here in Genesis 28 how God graciously intervenes in the life of Jacob. He's reached through the curtain. The curtain that divides the ordinary from the extraordinary. He's revealed a cosmic reality to this fugitive on the run. He's shown Jacob the possibility of a a life lived with him. It's beautiful. And it's an incident, I don't know about you, but it creates an appetite in me. It leaves me wondering, how can I get through that divide? How can I see the, the stairway? How can I live the, the, the fullness of life that a dream like this talks about? How can I see God? How can I get in? Let me show you how we can get in. Will you turn with me to John chapter 1? It's on page 1063. Actually, we'll be dealing with some material on page 1064 at the end of that chapter. John chapter 1, page 1064. If you look at the headings at the end of that chapter, you'll see that it has to do with Jesus calling his first or his early disciples. And then the last chunk of the chapter deals with his call of Philip and a guy called Nathaniel. I want you to notice just for a couple of moments what Jesus says to Nathaniel. His friend Philip has told him about Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, well, he's not going to be anything very interesting because nothing good comes from Nazareth. But once he meets Jesus, that all changes. He's very struck by Jesus' intimate knowledge of him and his gracious acceptance of him. And soon we have him saying, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. And it's at this point that Jesus references our Jacob story, the one that we have been dealing with this morning. Look at verses 49 and 50. He says, Nathaniel, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel, you're going to see the stairway to heaven. In this conversation with Nathaniel, a guy who's only beginning just momentarily to understand who Jesus might be, Jesus reaches back to Genesis chapter 28, our passage this morning, and he references that Jacob story. And he says, Nathaniel, I am the true story. That story and all the other biblical stories are about me. 
Jacob's dream wasn't just a dream. It was a promise of something and someone to come. Jesus is telling Nathaniel, I'm the way through the barrier. I'm the way to the cosmic reality that lies beyond. Jesus is telling Nathaniel that the Jacob story is all about him and that all the Old Testament stories are really all about him. What about, for example, John the Baptist? When he sees Jesus on the horizon, he points and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God. You remember the story, don't you? How God's judgment goes out through Egypt and how only those who have killed a lamb and have put the blood on the doorframe of their house, the judgment passes over only those. John the Baptist is making a point here. He's saying those people in Egypt, they weren't saved because of some woolly little lamb. They were saved because of that guy there. He is the Lamb of God. That story, way back then, is about him. All the great stories in the Old Testament are about him. But folks, I don't think Jesus Christ leaves it there. I don't think it's only the Old Testament stories that are about him. All the stories are about him. All the great stories. Have you ever wondered why we get so moved when we hear the old stories? I'll tell you why. Because even though they're clearly fictional, there's something deeply true about them. They're the best stories. Think for a second about Beauty and the Beast. Why is it that you find a story like that moving? Why why does Hollywood have to remake it every five or six years in some different form? Why do we want to keep coming back to a story? I'll tell you why. Because we're drawn to the idea that sacrificial love will finally transform. But in real life, we know that it doesn't. Not always or even often. So why do we keep coming back to the story? Sleeping Beauty... We're not dead. We're, we're just asleep. Sorry, we're not, we're not asleep. We're under a spell. We're not dead. We're under a spell. We're waiting for a prince to come, day, come someday and set us free from this spell that we're under. What are those stories all about? I think every single one of the old great stories tells us something that we know must be true. There is a love that can break death. There is a way to live forever. There is a a, a sacrifice that leads to resurrection. Folks, do you see what Jesus Christ is saying? He's saying that the reason you feel that way is because there is a cosmic reality on the other side of the wall. And my story, the story of my birth, and my life, and my death, and resurrection isn't just another one of those stories. It's the story that all the other stories point to. It's the one that makes them all true. If only I could get in.
we say. If only I could get into that story, get into a story where we break spells, where death leads to resurrection, where love transforms, and Jesus Christ comes and he says, you can get in. You can get into my story. You can know me. My life can be yours. And then those stories become your story. Spells will be broken in your life. And through you, spells will be broken in others. We're out of time. And still we're asking, how do you get in? How how do we get in to this story? Do I have to read the Bible more? Do I have to come to more church services? Do I have to pray more? Do I have to tell more people about Jesus? How, How do I get in? If we're still wondering what I have to do to get in, then we've missed the point. We don't have to do anything. God didn't say to Jacob, I'm up here, build yourself a ladder, come up and see me. Look at what Jesus says to Nathanael. What does he say? I tell you the truth, you'll see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I'm the ladder. I came to be with you. I came to bring you to God. All you have to do is take a step. Put your foot on the first step. Trust in me. I lived the perfect life you should have lived, and I died the shameful death you should have died. I've done it all. It's sorted. Just trust me. And if you do that, you and I get in. Let's pray.